Our scripture lesson this morning comes from two different books of the Bible. So go ahead and hold one with placeholder. Be ready to change pages quickly. We're going to, to follow the thread line of a, a, an early conversation in the early church, beginning in Acts 15, verses 22 through 29, then moving to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I invite you to follow along or simply listen if you haven't already marked the pages. From the book of Acts chapter 15, and then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. And with them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We've heard that some of you went out from us without our that some went out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you along with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord, our, our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are sending Judas and Salasto, confirmed by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food that has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that, quote, we all possess knowledge, end quote. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food, sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And there is no God but the one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. Since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, though. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? 
So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is being destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. Whether we come with willing ears or with stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Most often when I preach on the scriptures, I look for an illustration, and I look for one in my own life or maybe in some book or piece of history, but sometimes the best illustration of the scriptures just comes from another part of the scriptures. That's how it seems to me today. And so before I talk about our main text from 1 Corinthians 8 and Acts 15, I want to talk about another moment in the book of Acts. One of my favorite moments, a moment we've preached on before, a moment that was a turning point in the life of the early church. And it's a story about a man who asked two questions that changed history. It's the passage that we usually call the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Woods and I preached on that passage back in October of 2021, so it's been a little bit. Maybe you weren't here that particular Sunday. But if you remember way back then, you remember that Philip was one of the early deacons of the church, known as Philip the Evangelist. And for the first seven years after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit descended, Philip had been doing what all the other leaders of the church had been doing, teaching and preaching and leading the early Christians, assisting in the distribution of food, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem. But about seven years in, about seven years after Pentecost, the early church faced its first wave of intense persecution. And most of the church leaders, including Philip, in the city had to leave Jerusalem. They split up and they moved on to Samaria and Judea and all the ends of the earth. So Philip was headed south toward a place called Gaza. And while he was on the way, he came upon an Ethiopian chariot that was carrying a man who was obviously very rich and very important. And when Philip peeked into the chariot, he saw that the man was reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip asked the man, do you understand what you are reading? And that's when the man whom Philip asked that question, the man responded with the first of the two questions that would end up changing the world. Philip asked the man, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch replied, how can I? unless someone explains it to me. Two weeks ago, we began the season of Lent by talking about giving up on talking about Jesus in the past tense. So we are going to talk and live our lives as if Jesus is still speaking in the present tense because he is risen and alive. And two weeks ago, we said that God is speaking to us in scripture. And then last week, we said that God is speaking to us through the gift of reason that helps us read the scriptures better. And some of y'all have said some very kind things about last week's sermon. It landed with a few of you, it seems, this idea that we were given our minds for a reason and to use them. But I am sure that last week's sermon was troubling for some of you too. I am sure that it was troubling to hear that God speaks through reason. 
Because I expect some of you have heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning-Kruger effect was a discovery of some psychologists who spent years testing people's ability to reason and logic. And what those two scientists found was that the people who did very badly on the tests of reasoning and logic were always much more confident about how they had done than the people who performed the best. Or, to hear Paul say it to the first Corinthians, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. You can see the Dunning-Kruger effect every time I attempt a DIY project at my home. I don't know how much I don't know. And so, I think I've got it all figured out. And it's usually about halfway through the project, or maybe not until the end, that I finally become aware of how much I do not know. It's not quite fair. It's a little too simplistic, but the popular summary of the Dunning-Kruger effect is that on any given topic, the problem with being dumb is that we're too dumb to know we're dumb. And if that doesn't make you worried about our reasoning abilities, I don't know what will. (laughs) What good is reason in a world like that, in a world where the things that we have the most confidence in are usually the things we understand the least? I thank God for the Ethiopian eunuch who was smart enough to know that he wasn't smart enough. He was smart enough to know that he wasn't smart enough to rely just on his Bible and his own brain as he sought the will of God. Thank God for the Ethiopian eunuch who asked the question first so that we can feel confident asking it today. How can I understand unless somebody helps me? The good news is that we have help. And the voices that can help us discern the will of God can come from far beyond our own small circles of friends or even a small group. It is a larger group of help than even the list of all the people living in the world today. The help we need can come, and often does come, from the past, from the living tradition of the church. When, you talk, when we talk together about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, about the idea that God still speaks to us in Scripture through our reason, tradition, and experience, that word tradition does far more for us than we could ever do for ourselves. Last week we mentioned that the word Trinity and the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed all began as attempts to use reason to sum up the indispensable themes of Scripture. But the reason we continue to talk about the Trinity and to recite the creeds is not just that they sounded reasonable to someone. The Trinity and the creeds have become a part of our tradition. Their reasoning has stood the test of time. It has been passed down to us and tested and affirmed over and over. And every church has a tradition. Every Christian has a tradition. Even the newest, most independent church plant in Mobile County, one that opened their doors today, I guarantee that church is part of some larger tradition. If you go to a church where the word sovereignty is used over and over and over, you can be pretty sure you have stepped into the Calvinist tradition. If you hear about an age of accountability, well, somebody heard that from the Baptists. If you hear there is no salvation outside the church, you're in a Catholic crowd. If you hear about victory, 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 
you stepped into a 19th century revival tent or a Pentecostal church. And if any church tries to tell you that they don't do tradition, they just preach the Bible, that means that their tradition is so down deep in their bones and in their souls that they don't even know it's a tradition. They think they thought of it first, which just goes to show the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's alive and well. But if we are honest about where we come from, if we can welcome the depth and the wisdom of our tradition, it will always humble us rather than puff us up. It's easier to accept gifts even from other traditions and to recognize the good and the grace in them when we can see how they resonate and how they differ from our own. When we know who we are, we can most appreciate what others have to give. In the United Methodist Church, our tradition comes in the form of John Wesley's sermons, our book of discipline, our hymnals, our history of doing missions through founding schools and hospitals and children's homes because we believe that a real faith should engage our head and our heart and our hands. Our tradition says there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, but there are things you can do to discover how much God already loves you. We use words like provenience and perfection And all these gifts have helped me understand my Bible better. They've helped me understand its major themes and its minor ones. And when I talk to my brothers and sisters in other traditions, they help me too. For instance, I preach more sermons on sovereignty than most Methodists. The good news is that we have help. Because God has given us more than just ourselves. Of course, just because a tradition is rich and deep and helpful doesn't mean that it's easy. Tradition can become kind of a shorthand, a cheat code, a bunch of jargon that makes things harder to understand rather than easier. All our traditions about the Bible can become a substitute for reading the Bible itself. And there's a reason I never open a sermon by reading from the Methodist book of discipline instead of a gospel lesson or the epistles. Our tradition is only good and it is only helpful if it draws us deeper into Scripture. Tradition can sometimes make us a little too inward focused. I always warn a church when they tell me, we're like a family. I know the good intent behind that. I know the good bonds, the the depth of tradition and the power of that. But I just always want to remind folks that nobody likes attending someone else's family reunion. (laughs) When our tradition causes us to forget how to talk to people who do not share that tradition, it's become an obstacle. But even though there are dangers in tradition, even though it is not easy to accept always the help of our tradition, our discipleship would be far harder without it. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes once had a student who was burning out during the second year of seminary. And one day this frustrated student blurted out, don't you wish we could just love Jesus without all this extra stuff? Don't you wish we just lived in the first century church back when it was simple? To which Hayes responded, oh, definitely not. Can you imagine spending days and months and years in arguments about circumcision? Hayes went on, I'm very glad we get to follow Jesus on the other side of that debate. 
And if you were listening to our reading from Acts 15 earlier, you may have noticed that that was the very debate that the early church was talking to God about. I expect you're not terribly worried these days about whether or not all male Christians must be circumcised. I expect it does not seem very controversial to you. Maybe circumcision doesn't seem important one way or another when it comes to someone's faith and salvation. But please understand that if you feel that way, it is only because someone else settled the debate 2,000 years ago. When they wrote the letter that we read from Acts 15 today. That letter was written after the first and only time during the apostles' lifetime, as the global church met in one place to ask the Holy Spirit, what should we do? For 2,000 years before the church, before Pentecost, the people of the one true God had been circumcised to show that they were set apart, that they were different from the world. And it's not at all silly for them to be worried about that everything distinctive about their culture is going to be changed as this church grows. It was just math, for one thing. They were worried that everything was going to change because in the first century there were a lot more Gentiles than there were Jews. So if the Gentiles came into the church and didn't learn the Jewish ways, then that threatened everything that Peter and James and John and all their family and all their friends had once believed had made them special. I mean, can you imagine if someone came to Mobile and promised us 200 years of economic growth, that we'd be the most prosperous city in America, but only if we give up shrimp and oysters and Mardi Gras. We'd all say, no, thank you. Because if we didn't have those things, would we even be mobile? That's what's at stake for Peter and for Paul when they come to Jerusalem saying, these Gentiles love Jesus, but if we ask them to be circumcised, it is going to be a yoke that will be too much for them to bear, just as the rest of the Jewish law has become too much for us. And with all that at stake, the church came together and decided that the Gentiles need not be circumcised and need not keep kosher laws. And now, we never fight about that. I've never seen a church split over circumcision. I love tradition. Of course, if that's all there was to it, that would mean that God spoke in tradition, not that God is still speaking. Right there at the end of Acts 15, Luke includes a little hint to us that the church will never be done listening to God. Did you catch what things the Jerusalem council said the Gentile Christians should avoid? They said, don't eat food that has been sacrificed to idols, avoid sexual immorality, and don't eat meat from an animal that has been strangled. And then did you catch what Paul said in the other passage we read today? The bit from 1 Corinthians 8, a letter that was written many years after the Jerusalem council. The council that Paul attended, by the way. Paul was the one who carried the letter to the churches that said, do not eat meat that is sacrificed to idols. And now, years later, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is writing to Christians in a very different city than Jerusalem, a very non-Jewish city, a city where all the meat that is sold in the markets, all of it has been sacrificed to Greek gods before it was butchered. And Paul says that there is nothing spiritually wrong with eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. That's not what Acts 15 said. Paul says, look, those idols aren't even real gods. 
They don't have any real power. So how could they possibly taint the meat? Paul says the only time you have to worry about eating meat that is sacrificed to idols is if it could be a stumbling block to someone else. And there's a lot more we could say about that. And we did when we preached on 1 Corinthians last summer. But for now, it's enough for us to see that Paul understood that he was handing down a living tradition, one that continues to go back to Scripture and ask new questions and ultimately goes back to God to ask, what are you saying now? And church has continued living out a living tradition ever since. You know, for the first 1,500 years or so of the church, It was illegal for one Christian to charge another Christian interest. Exodus 22, after all, and Psalm 115, and Nehemiah 5, and a number of other verses all say that charging interest is extortion. And Jesus said in Luke 6 that we actually ought to lend without any expectation of return at all. And the church had a very particular way of understanding that for 1,500 years. For 1,500 years, the tradition was so strong that there were essentially no Christian banks. And it was so understood in the life of the church that when you read Dante's Inferno, money lenders are in the seventh circle of hell, just two from the bottom. You read the story of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, and the entire plot is based on the presumption that only a non-Christian would charge interest on a loan. Martin Luther agreed with the traditional interpretation, but then came John Calvin who thought that God's will could maybe include loaning money, as long as it wasn't at excessive interest rates. And it's worth noting that the modern banking system began in the very Calvinist countries of Switzerland and the Netherlands. And the last 400 years or so have lifted more people out of poverty than all the centuries before. If you're a banker, think a Calvinist. You borrowed money for your house. Thank God for the tradition that made it possible. And I hope you appreciate what just happened there. And the long conversations of traditions, the Wesleyan tradition that we are a part of, and the Calvinist tradition are not famous for their cooperation. But I just said something really nice. And honestly, my experience is that a deeper understanding of one tradition with its strengths and its weaknesses, its major themes and its minor themes, the deeper we understand our own tradition, the greater our appreciation for and our ability to learn from others, and especially from those who have lived their faith in very different situations than our own. We may be separated by time and by culture, but we share with the great tradition one faith, one Lord, and one baptism, as Ephesians says. Tradition not only helps us understand each other, it helps us read the Bible better. And in reading, it helps us to do the most important thing of all, to listen to the God who still speaks. Sometimes, tradition keeps our own flawed reasoning in check. Sometimes it shows us possibilities we never imagined. And sometimes we have reason to believe there's something missing in the tradition that makes our lives possible. Tradition is never a straitjacket or a new legalism for the church, but it is always our help. As much a gift to us as Philip was to the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 8, 
says that when that eunuch asked for help, Philip began with the very same passage that the eunuch had been reading. And then Philip kept teaching and talking until he got all the way to the good news of Jesus. And that's when the Ethiopian eunuch asked the second question that would change the world. The question that made him the first missionary to Africa, the first Gentile convert recorded in the Bible. As they passed some water there on the road, he looked at Philip and he asked, is there anything to prevent me from being baptized? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.